0: recording inside the cohab podcast studio space under the texas street bridge by the red river in downtown shreveport louisiana and this is the 3180 podcast what is going on in the 318 what is our current identity shreveporters can make this place into the city we want it to be it's time for shreveport to make a 180 every thursday we are having conversations about doing just that we're talking to people who are making the difference in our city i'm josh clayton I'm Thomas Young. Welcome to the 3180 Podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest installment of the 3180 Podcast. We have another guest host edition. Uh, today's guest host is Danielle Richard. Danielle is a co-owner of Richard Creative with her husband. They do branding and marketing, and they serve clients such as Spar, the Jason Brady Restaurant Group, and Lola Magazine. She will be interviewing Councilwoman Lavette Fuller. Lavette is a founding member of Reform Shreveport, She's a city councilwoman for District B, which encompasses Stoner Hill, downtown Shreveport and the Highland neighborhood, and she has a passion for historic preservation and land use policy. Welcome, Daniel Richard and LeVette Fuller.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So Lavette, one, one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about today is um, what a policy wonk is. I know that's something that you describe yourself as, <laughs> somebody who loves uh, public policy, and I, I wanted to know what what do you describe that as?
2: Well, I don't know if I'm really like the wonkiest of policy wonks, but a policy wonk is someone who really gets into public policy. It could be on the environment. It could be land use. It could be really any number of things. But policies are pretty much the code logic that put th- put issues together and kind of scaffold the laws that we use. So the wonkier people are the ones that actually can figure out really quickly. Like if you take out one piece of policy, what it does to everything else that's in place. Ah, okay. And, and they just kind of stay excited about seeing how it all fits together and understanding what's, what's eating away at what we've got going on in, as a society. For me with land use policy, it's, um, Understanding like that, if you if you remove something about if you remove something about where like a liquor store can go, then if you if you change one piece of the policy, that looking at the whole thing holistically, and you've maybe forgotten that we have a rule about how close you can be to churches or how close you can be to schools, you've got to like relook at that entire thing because just taking one piece out might make several other pieces of policy fall apart.
1: That makes sense. So it's a giant puzzle. Basically, yeah. you, you really have to account for every piece of yes. the puzzle in order to make it work for for what your goals and objectives yeah. are. And
2: your wonks are the people that get excited about understanding all that stuff. And you never know everything, but then you get excited about like kind of, I don't know, digesting more and more of it. Right. And I don't I think that a lot of people um, wouldn't want to have to hang out with that at a dinner party.
1: You know? For Sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I think most of us are glad somebody is thinking about that, but I certainly am not an expert and I'm not going to read up on all yeah. of those details for sure. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> but there, we do have several issues that are kind of in the news right now in Shreveport about where liquor stores can be located mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and where certain businesses can or should operate. Yeah. Um, so Shreveport has policies on the books about those sorts of things right now, right?
2: We do, to some degree. Um, the liquor store thing is one that's a really big one, but another issue right now is uh, small box stores. Hmm. Um, like your dollar general discount type stores that are on a smaller footprint than a Walmart. And what happens is there's no limits per se on where they can go once the zoning for commercial is in place. So if you've got commercial zoning, those stores can pop in and it might be something that you don't want in your neighborhood, but there's no additional overlaying pieces of policy to stop it. Mm. So right now, across the country, people are starting to see a correlation between discount stores going in and the neighborhood kind of being seen as uh, going into decline. Or once that store is there, it means nothing else is popping up there and maybe we would have liked another amenity in our neighborhood instead of that. Mm. A lot of times those stores are happening in places that don't have grocery stores. Um, Sometimes it's just in a place that's like more of a middle-class neighborhood that just doesn't want that down the street. But right now, like Oklahoma City and I think Tulsa have looked at the food desert issue and they've decided that they don't want more than X number of dollar stores or small box stores happening within a mile of each other. And that was a way to slow down some of that development.
1: Gotcha. Yeah.
2: Um, I think that... Shreveport isn't hasn't ever approached land use in those terms before. But now that we have the unified the unified development code, which is the more of a form based code that we have now, mm-hmm. I think people are starting to see it less of a hindrance and more of an opportunity to to look at to look at how our city is laid out and to make different decisions and to see how the public has a voice in that or can have a voice in that.
1: So for the average Shreve Porter, how would they get more involved in trying to shape what they want in their neighborhood? For a lot of people, it's getting involved with the local neighborhood association. And
2: I think technology makes it a lot easier for people to have a voice. You, um, every email that the city council gets is a public record. Oh, wow. Yeah, but also we have email access and we all have our email on our phones. And our laptops it's always there so instead of having to send you know writing a letter signing a petition sure you can do that you can email one of us or all of us and encourage all of your friends to do the same and you can come to the council meetings or the Metropolitan Planning Commission meetings if that's who's hearing a case and speak your voice you get three minutes I like to tell people to kind of practice so they know what three minutes feels like right um, because once it's over, that's it. And you want to make sure you got everything out you really needed to get out. For sure. And if there's several people coming, everyone can take their own piece of it if you're really organized. Ooh, fascinating.
1: Yeah. So tell me, when are City Council meetings and uh, Metropolitan Planning Commission meetings? Let's see. So I'll go through, let's see if I can get through the whole gamut
2: of things that I remember. Cattle Parish Commission meets, they have their work session on the first Monday. They have their meeting on the Thursday that same week. MPC, and those are like at 3.30. Okay. MPC meetings are at 3 o'clock on the first Wednesday. And sometimes they have a second meeting. They're able to call another meeting mid-month. City Council meetings are the second and fourth Tuesday by charter of every month, but we have our <laughs> work session the preceding Monday of that same week.
1: Okay, so the wor- the work session would be to talk about all of the issues that are going to yeah. Gonna be that's when we out. we're supposed to flesh out all the
2: issues and get and get a better understanding of any legislation on the public record. A lot of times we've done hopefully our homework before then and gotten a lot of questions answered, but the public discussion on the brunt of everything is on that Monday, mm-hmm. and then that Tuesday we're supposed to be prepared to vote. But either day we have public comment. On the Monday, comment has to be about something on the agenda. Okay. On the Tuesday, it can be about things on or not on the agenda. And um, that was actually something interesting that happened. <laughs> in what way? <laughs> Are we ready to, to go away from like the the wonkiness of it and get maybe into the drama? We can go back and talk about how the built environment is in like more of a visual way. Mm-hmm. But um, as far as the drama of council... Yeah, tell us about that. When, I, when we first got on the the rookies of us I knew that you have two public comments on this on the Tuesday one at the beginning of the meeting which is about anything that's on the agenda things that we're gonna vote on later in the meeting and then at the end of the meeting there was a public comment for anyone that just had some concerns they wanted to bring up oh gotcha well it makes for a long meeting when controversial topics come up and then there's other people at the end that still want to talk about what they want to talk about and that could be literally anything I mean, we hope that it's pertaining to the city, but like we have a few people that come in that are regular people that come in that are going to tell you exactly how they feel about their issues, but they're going to throw in a couple of dad jokes while they're at it. (laughs) And to me, that's charming. Right. But when we had those two comment sections, this person would also get up and maybe talk about like where he thinks he needs a traffic light or other issues, and then also throw in another dad joke. So I had to miss a meeting, and this was already on the agenda, but I wasn't there to vote until, like, you know, raise Kane about it. And um, we voted for the one one time to speak instead of having the two while I was out. Oh, so now we're just down to one. We're down to one, so all of those things get loaded at the front of the meeting. And when there's something super controversial going on, you have even more people showing up. And then we can always, as a council, give permission. We can vote on whether or not a person can extend their time. Mm -hmm. But if you do it for one person, you're going to have to do it for the next person. So now we're trying not to do that so much either. But it starts, I think the reason I call it drama is you have to wonder what's motivating my colleagues to want to cut down on how often people can talk. Right. You know, I'm like, if you think you're going to get hungry, then bring snacks. Yeah. You know, this is the people's house. We just get to, you know, we're holding court, but this is their, this is their house. This is, this is, this is where you get to have FaceTime with your council person that, you might not be able to get on the phone as quickly as you'd like. You don't know if they saw your email. You're not comfortable with email, mm-hmm. but now you can see them. You don't have to go chasing them around the district to where you heard they had coffee. Right. You know, like this is like the easiest access point is to show up at that meeting, and now you've kind of
1: limited, limited the
2: time that they can have that. <clears throat> and maybe it's because of the theatrics of it, maybe it's because it is emotional, but I kind of think it's up to us to condition our skin with like the best moisturizer that's skin thickening that that the korean beauty people can make
1: you know right so so it sounds like um staying on topic with this new direction for comments is pretty much impossible if they're all loaded into the beginning of the meeting
2: well you when people are commenting on all of the things at once instead of going item by item or like limiting the non-topical stuff to the end, mm-hmm. it does seem to dilute the potency. Like it makes you, or you question whether or not what everyone said at the beginning is going to be on their minds when it's time to actually vote on something. Absolutely. Um, and when things are emotional, there is a tendency and I'll say it, it hasn't bothered me yet, but there may come a topic where The personal feelings, the emotional feelings of the public start to feel like a personal attack on us as the decision makers. And it's kind of hard I think to steel yourself for some of that and to know how how it's going to affect the way that you respond with your vote on something. Right now, like back to the liquor store thing, um, the emails I get usually are either really quick, I'm for it, I'm against it, Mm -hmm. but the comments on social media are going to be the ones that remind you of the NIMBYs, the not in right. my backyard types. Would you want this in your backyard? How would you tell? Could you do this to us? Right. And things are a lot more pragmatic than that. And for me, I want to know about the data. Several people have, like, you know, on top of any research I might do myself, they've sent out. Um, here's several articles showing studies that show that liquor stores are a contributing factor to an increase in crime. You know. Right. Okay, thank you. Thank you for at least trying to keep this about the data and about, about how this could hurt a neighborhood and not just about, like, your, your discomfort. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean,
3: it's... How do you, how do you go about collecting that data? Like, like for, for instance, if it's about, you know, hey, the, the, um, the liquor store is, you know, it's dangerous. It makes crime go up. How do you
2: collect that data? Um, for If we're looking on a local level, we've got the crime maps and um, the crime data that we get from the police. And we can pretty much see, you know, day by day, month by month, where crime increases and decreases. So not necessarily, I, I haven't looked at is this. That,
3: is that public? Like, can you Yeah, public, I
2: mean, you p- can police records are public records, but what you have to remember with what is important about Looking at police data is the time it takes for them to call that data to give it to someone in the public, and then the expense involved in it. So for me, as a council person, I might get something, and then I'll just go ahead and share it um, and let you know about it because I can, because it is a public record. But just you know, if I'm someone that's just an interested party as a citizen, um, that that information officer is gonna have to stop doing several other things to. Maybe dig up all that information to get it to you. You should talk to Chris Lyon and Keith Hansen about Geeks for Government and what they were able to get, and how long it took, and how much data it was, and how expensive it almost was.
1: Yeah, and well, data in particular can the having quality data, I guess, can take a long time to to vet the information and make sure it's accurate. I know a lot of nonprofits locally work off of data that's a couple of years old just because it's taken that long to verify it. Mm -hmm. Are we looking at that kind of thing with with police information as well or is it a little bit more current? It's a little
2: more current. So one thing is gonna be 911 calls and then they have to report where they went to, like where the call went to and what action was taken and all of that can go into, all of that can be geo-tagged. that's the part that can take a little bit longer just depending on the kind of technology that's used. I think that that's something that the mayor and his chief technology officer are trying to improve on for us. Awesome. But they give us stats by
1: district every month. Right. I've seen those posts, um, a, a monthly yeah. spreadsheet type a, of thing. Is that
3: posted like somewhere where you could get to it?
2: It's on the city website under the police department, but also um, a lot of the neighborhood associations will have that information shared with them by the, by the city, the city the CLOs, the liaison officers. The other thing is the police that are like working on certain stuff, like back to alcohol, so bars, Mm -hmm. um, they can look at the information, the number of calls that come into a certain block, let's say the 200 block of Texas Street. Right. Um, Downtown is actually one of the safest neighborhoods, but when crime happens there, if it's violent crime, you're gonna hear a lot more about it. And it kind of leads to more of the consternation people have about being in downtown. But there were three bars open on one side of Texas Street in that block. Some terrible things happened. Some ownership issues took place. One bar closes, another bar closes. When one of those bars got ready to reopen, the officer that's in charge of all the liquor licenses and stuff was just kind of like he looked. He showed me the data. Says while well, they've been closed, we've had a substantial drop in the number of calls to this. Oh district. wow! Yeah, yeah. To so this specific block. And it's like it might not be them, but it might be something to do with whatever activity is around there. If they reopen, we need to, we need to, kind of plan for plan that. Plan for that, and they, as the owners, will need to plan for it too, because it's also their reputation.
3: Of course. D- does that mean that you then it's harder to get a liquor license at like because of that data?
2: Um, it, like as you it know, won't be you the can't. location; it would be the reputation of the owner. Okay. Like any and if you have if you if you breach policy, if you get cited for different things that can cost you your ability to ever get a liquor license again if it's that bad. Wow. You have so that keep. could follow you mm-hmm. as a as a business owner. Well when you apply for like for the liquor license, they they don't just get your information, they get your spouse's information. Anyone with a more than five percent interest in the in the ownership has to also be on that application. So that means no one can be a
1: felon. Wow. You know? Yeah. Like that makes sense. It's pretty intense. Yeah. Well, and that's good, right? Like I feel like that kind of vetting oh, yeah. is, is a good thing in and, the long run. But then that goes back to the liquor licenses again, right? If you
2: have X amount of, of breaches of a law, where you haven't carded someone, and vice catches you more than X amount of times not carding an eighteen-year-old grocery store uh, pharmacy gas station, you'll lose your liquor license. And in some cases your entire company, if you're a franchise, might lose theirs as well. Wow. So when we talk about these issues of vagrancy and everything else that people are worried about, if this stuff is actually happening, there's already one mechanism in place to to halt some of that activity.
3: Gotcha. Well and I think too that might also be whenever you go to any establishment to buy a drink and it's they ask for your ID and people get their feathers ruffled it's like they're just doing their job the a you have to have a valid identification card or they can't serve you drink or they can get in trouble mm-hmm. and if they get in trouble multiple times they lose their license it's a it's a bigger uh, education issue than oh, just yeah. like oh i'm offended that you won't mm-hmm. you know or i'm inconvenienced yeah. for the eight seconds it takes me to go into my wallet or yeah whatever.
1: right for sure well, and I think it depends on the person. I, I wouldn't be offended to be carded. Well, some, that'd right, be a some, compliment, people, some but people aren't. Yeah, and some, yeah. some ladies of a certain age are absolutely
2: delighted any time someone wants to see how old they are. And it's exactly. even better if you lie and go, oh, my God, I had no idea. Yeah. There's no way that you're that old. <laughs> That's the best. I love
1: it. <sighs> so what are, some, what are some of the things, as far as public policy goes in Shreveport, that you think... Wow, we really have the potential to do some good stuff here. I can't wait to jump into this. Um oh wait, What can I not wait to jump into?
2: Well, complete streets. Okay. I as we as we resurface or repave new streets, if we're able to have lanes for everyone, if we have okay. safe sidewalks for pedestrians, safe lanes for bicyclists lanes for buses that don't slow down, cars, and also are tree-lined and beautiful and shaded. Um, every opportunity we have to do that, I think, is an opportunity for us to, like, really make our community more vibrant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some areas that are kind of ripe for that already, like downtown. Of course. Um, and, and to some degree, Highland. But I think that a policy area that I'm kind of, interested in but not really sure how fast we can work on it goes back to property standards and Mm. blight I would like to see what we're able to do about infill and incentivizing infill some of that is gonna take some help at the state legislature though Mm -hmm. Um, it gets very tricky like I don't want to play I think if anyone's are y'all familiar with Adam ruins everything Vaguely, I would love to do like an Adam ruins everything about adjudicated properties and tax sale properties and infill in Shreveport to kind of walk people through the process. But it Mm. needs to be with someone that's kind of a character so that you don't just have your eyes bleed (laughs) because it's very it's tricky. Right. And it's something that's causing us some problems in Shreveport when we look at a property and go, oh, man, here's this empty lot. Why can't we do something awesome with this empty lot? Oh man why are all these buildings downtown vacant like we could be really special right now Texas Avenue could be really really great if only we had owners for these buildings and we could get them back into use for for retail for residents whatever Um, I want to tackle some of those policies so that we can actually make that happen
0: now's your opportunity Give us some give us some solutions to yeah. some of the uh, the things you just mentioned.
1: What are action items regular people can do to to well, encourage that? Well, when th- it's from a, from a policy perspective. What we have to do is you're
2: gonna have, we're, when we when we look at new policies that can speed things up, like being supportive through emails and talking to your state legislature, state legislators. Um, like we've got Thomas Presley that's about to be going to Baton Rouge. I'm really excited about him um, because he's a reasonable, fun person to talk to about these things. And being able to redevelop that, to some degree, is gonna be policies at the state level. Okay, gotcha. And then, but that's gonna mean any resolution that the city council can do in support of that, just symbolically supporting those things, Mm -hmm, too. mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, and, And staying aware. Now, beyond that, some of the things that we might want to do might deal with like the value how we value land um incentivizing if we're able to either do tax incentives or vacancy taxes which is something i really need to think through because i'm not sure how i feel about it but it might be that we want to do a vacancy tax that says if you aren't if you don't have a tenant in this building or a plan for this building to have someone in it in the next six months you are going to be penalized for not even trying because you're basically holding us hostage. Interesting. Yeah. That could be pretty powerful. And supporting those types of maneuvers would be really great. Another would be if we can put together a legislation that says, dear banks and gas stations and fast food people, before you level, well, before you move out of this, depreciated building, you must find a ten- tenant or put together a demolition plan before you buy another piece of property and rebuild.
1: Oh, wow. So so they couldn't effectively abandon properties then? Right. That's, that would be something that could help us
2: a lot. And then we basically be regulating our way out of having all of those empty, you know, leftover small boxes. That sounds amazing. Are other cities doing this sort of thing. Other cities success? are doing those things, but a lot of the a lot of the people that are looking at vacancy penalties, <clears throat> they're wealthier cities than we are. They're busier cities than we are. And I talked to a gentleman yesterday who's kind of a developer, and he was just kind of like basically it was players gonna play. He was like, developers are gonna develop. If there is a piece of land to develop and they've got a bulldozer, they're going to do it because that's their industry. But we have to figure out how to incentivize coming back and doing that inside, in the infill, inside the loops where we have these vacant places or blighted places that we wanna replace um instead of making it so easy to go out into the green spaces, right
1: how do we make it more attractive yeah. to focus on the center of mm-hmm. the city Because the center of the city is where the, is the money maker, right?
0: I have a question about like policy level at the state level or policy implications at the state level that um, that would need to be changed in order to move that forward like you just mentioned that that we might not, as a locality, be able to make the changes that we want to make, but at the state level, certain things could come about at the bill phase right. that our that our locality could get behind. So have you studied any of that, or do you know? Well, I'll anything? give
2: you an example of something that's happened that was kind of good. Uh, with like adjudicated property tax sale property, you have to try X amount of times to get in touch with anyone that might be an owner through succession to a property, and I think that uh, state rep Glover and someone else from this, from another locality or um, municipality worked together to create legislation to shorten that time
3: oh, nice. so you
2: didn't have to it just to, to slow down to speed up some of those delays it's things like that um, I think there's another piece and I can't remember exactly the legislation but it deals with what you can and can't tell a property owner to do mm, you know yeah. like if I don't want my grass to be you know 13 inches tall instead of 12 it's my property and you can't tell me what to do um and some of those things are at the state level and we can kind of slowly chip away at those things and then it affects what we can do with this at this as a city
3: can you also do those things like for instance in highland you could do that on a neighborhood level though like say hey Everybody, you know, please keep your grass at this level. There's not a law that says that, but like as neighbors, as people who
2: well, that can be self-policing. Sure. But Highland is never going to have a homeowners association that everyone has like signed off as their agreement. No, but and, this, and that's why as people a like,
3: as a community
2: as a service com- okay, maybe so or um, something on that level. Well, being a good neighbor, and you've got a lot of good neighbors in a lot of neighborhoods. And a lot of people will say, well, the problem is the renters. Mm -hmm. The problem isn't the renters, it's the landlords. So digging deeper into this, absentee landlords that are not keeping up with their property and only respond to citations or sometimes don't even respond to that are a big issue. So someone might have tenants in a property and they might live in Canada and they're fairly absentee. Um, they might pay someone to occasionally come through and cut the grass and to deal with issues but if they only got that property like through like a tax sale or something they don't really feel any real issue they don't really worry about it so let's say a certain amount of time has gone by and they've ignored all the citations all the certified mail that's come from the city now they owe the city because the city is cutting the grass and boarding up the property the city will basically come into owning the property. They may have another chance to like pay back all the tax issues or whatever, but at a certain point, the city ends up having that property, now it's adjudicated, and now something else could happen with the property, but only after it's gone through all of those other steps through. Which um, is a
3: three-year process. Right. Minimum, correct?
2: Which is why, this is why we can't have nice things, so we want to speed up that process. Okay. And so you have a lot of neighbors that are like, they're resentful of the amount of, um, of bad tenants, bad landlords, but it's very difficult to get, to seize that property and do something else with it. And that's what we're trying to speed up mm. and just, and part of it's just enforcement. Right. And this is why I say it's tricky because I'm still trying to figure out which parts of these things we need to take a harder stab at in order to hold people to account better.
1: Well, it, it, that's kind of part of what is confusing about policy and government to me. It's hard to tell at first glance who's in charge. Is it the city? Is it the parish? Is it the state? Like where do these rules and regulations come into play? Right. And it sounds like in the case of absentee landlords, it's gotta get really bad and then stay bad mm-hmm. for a good three year process. Nobody wants to live next door to that. Nobody wants to years. live
2: next to that and the thing is, it's a three- year process if you're I guess if you're lucky if someone next door is complaining so what happens is a lot of times the property standards issues don't even don't even come into play until a neighbor's had enough and does that first complaint mm. and I work with a lot of very frustrated um, neighbors who are just fed up and they know they like I know that that person that owns that property lives in Canada Canada or California or Bozier and isn't doing anything with it, and I'm the one who's gone and closed the door because squatters have found a way into the property, oh this is really taking a turn.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, the, I mean, it's a, it's a real problem that people live with every well, day. I mean, it, I see it driving it, through yes. neighborhoods every And the day. thing
2: is, like, not to stay on, like, the really negative, like, I don't want to get into everything I've ever heard in the narrative, but what it affects is people's mental health. And then that actually contributes to more crime. Mm. So back to what we can do, like not on a policy side, but it goes back to some of the Reform Shreveport things. What we can do is control the things we can control. We can help our neighbors that are falling on hard times that just need someone to cut their grass. We can keep up the community gardens. We can help keep the parks clean. We can help keep the streets clean. Mm-hmm. When we see blight and we know that the blighted property is owned by the city, we can ask them permission to let us just put like a few, like put some wildflowers out there. Like, can we just make some pretty, and get there, rid of the trash?
3: Is there a, like a, a, I'm sure it's public record, but is there, how, how do you find out which, which of those properties, you know, and then, and um, then go and st- say, like, this, 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 and this property, you know, and and get, like, I'm sure John them. Paul or somebody like that is, like, yeah. tell me where they are. I will go there tomorrow with my rubber boots on, and I will plant something that doesn't need a lot of water that, that keeps, you know... It's
2: just, it's through the city. The, um, I think you can actually go through the website and see the properties that the city has.
3: Okay. Wait, like...
2: Like, through the website. Would, I think that you might...
3: Through the city's website. I might have for, to double-check
2: and tell you later. Yeah,
3: well, just let me know, because yeah. I, I would love to know what those things are. Like, I know that there's... Specifically, there's a residence next to Josh Clayton's office, which I've looked at the title on. It is a very dirty title because of the person that previously owned it on some level uh, had a bankruptcy... And then some people stepped in to buy that tax lien, and then that's gone through a couple people, and it's, you know, Josh has to, like, basically cut their grass, or they don't cut it, so he has an office right next door, and for him to have a nice-looking office, he has to do extra work, Mm -hmm. so...
2: And it's on Stoner.
3: it's on Stoner, correct. So, but that neighborhood, you can also ask anyone who works in Josh Clayton's office, or... Ron Michauda or anyone, everyone on that block kind of knows each other, Mm -hmm. and there are some people that have a mental health issue, but they're, everybody knows them. They're not dangerous. They're just, you know.
2: There's some charm to everything.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, 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 I'll I'll throw in this. I've looked at how to clean that tax title up. Yeah. I've reached out to everyone who had a judgment against the previous record owner. I know exactly how much money I'm going to have to spend to get my hands on that Mm -hmm. property. I've looked at the property inside and out I know exactly roughly how much I'm gonna have to spend to fix it up so now I have a piece of property that I get to own that I've spent the money to fix up and what incentive do I have to do that on stoner Avenue if I'm gonna have to start paying another 2,500 a year in taxes on it I'm basically gonna have to find a tenant I'm not gonna be able to turn around and sell that property yeah I don't think but for at least not for what it took me to clean it up. Now we're gonna have a guy on here who's actually flipping houses in Highland. I wanna ask him specifically how- Boston? Yeah. I wanna know how to make money on this property next door to me. But anyway, so we have those issues. Multiple years have, it. multiple years, people have bought tax liens on it. Right. So there's more than one tax lien holder. There's more than one judgment holder against the record owner. And it's right next door to me, I share a parking lot with. I own the parking lot too. so. I, I know you don't know how to do that, but like that's an issue. That's that's one of the issues well, that you deal with all over. Highland. I think
2: it's the it's that's the issue that everyone is seeing as a burden. Is like, what is it really worth to any of us to make these investments when we don't know what the return is going to be? And part of it is that nobody wants to have you first
1: because mm-hmm.
2: you don't. I mean, and I this might be just kind of the psychologi- the psychology of Shreveport is that. No one wants to be first. And that's little things, too. Like, we're, how many of us walk past the trash instead of putting it in the trash can? Right. And now we're going to take that up to... And like if I throw this away, who's going to just throw the next piece out at me while I'm throwing it away? And now we're looking at it and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. And um, and it does kind of take a critical mass. But that's why I'm glad you mentioned Austin. Um, Austin Wiseman is one of my favorites. He's one of my favorite people. Sometimes I feel like I have to, like... I'm like, I need you to slow down a little bit. Like, take one one less sip of that espresso, buddy, because you're moving way too fast for me right now. Um, so I don't know Austin. Tell me what he does. Austin is a young dad who was in insurance, and husband, and he was in insurance and he decided to go into real estate. And he is really motivated. So he um, starts with investors buying up properties and, like, getting really good construction crews together to fix them up, and he does a really good job on them, and he's keeping them, like, on the... They're, like, market rate, but they're on the reasonable side for Highland. He wants oh, nice. to help attract young families to Highland. Perfect. Yeah. Um. And the the only thing that I worry about is if he's... If he moves too fast and it starts to destabilize the people who maybe aren't ready to ready to move
1: mm.
2: um, but I don't know I don't know that we're there yet but he's really motivated and he gets really really excited and he does his homework and he'll be driving around he'll see when people are not like wait a minute I'm playing by all these rules and I know you're not playing by all these rules mm-hmm. and I need to know like how often people are going to end up on Austin's naughty list because if they're on his naughty list they're on my naughty list and now they need to be on the Um, naughty list for the engineering department for the permitting department for the MPC so like it's not that he's going around tattling on people but he's he's awake to the right way to do things right and like if we have like two more Austins out there we can really be moving right right? but if
3: then if you could if you could say hey let's figure out a way to you know your naughty nice list it's like these people do they know they're being naughty? Like at least let them know. And if they do, and there's a way to to help, because all of those people that live in that neighborhood, like you're saying, like if you're gonna have a better neighborhood, that means it becomes more expensive for everybody there, but it also becomes less dangerous. Like all of the things that you you want for for particularly for for your for my district. district.
2: Oh, so uh, Mo, so Mobile, Alabama. They used Instagram. Mobile, Alabama, as a part of what they were doing, they
1: used um, they used Instagram to kind of spotlight blight. Really? So rather than shining a light on their Instagram feed of all of the good things, they pointed out the blight?
2: I think that they might have used one specifically just for this. Okay. Um, yeah, they are... Like code enforcement would take these pictures and pop them up, and it just kind of shamed people maybe into wow. um, compliance. About 16% of Mobile's 90,000 housing units are vacant, according to estimates from U.S. Census Bureau. But the thing is, Mobile has been doing some really positive things, like not just that, but what happened is they had a Bloomberg innovation team come in to work with them, which meant that you had an outside set of, of eyes, like Collecting all the data and helping you come up with solutions for it. Mm -hmm. Um, I bring that up because the good news about it is that before Mayor Perkins was Mayor Perkins, he already was connected to the Bloomberg um, groups, to the Bloomberg Foundation and Shanerica Fleming and uh, Sharika Fields-Jones have both gone through the Harvard-Bloomberg leadership training for cities. Oh, nice. And I believe he's also gone through a mayor's institute, and I think those are precursors to being able to apply for an innovation team, which means that, and, and I think that you should ask him to say it, but I'm pretty sure, like, he, well, he told me that he's already sent that application off. Oh, awesome. So it's something that, like, we can look at what other cities are doing and be creative, but we also may have a chance right now to have someone come in and look at us and do something that fits our size and scope and what our issues and priorities are to help us along this process in a way like, and it won't be like, people are, people always say, well, Shreveport's really good at bringing in consultants and ignoring them. Right. I think that this is really about the implementation plan and things that are going to be, Like, looking at, well, why have we not implemented our plans faster? Like, what in the psychology needs to change and then actually being able to change it? And right now, I think what's exciting is you do have a young mayor that's interested in innovating. And he's got a team that's gone and gotten the training. And he's got a CTO that's, you know, that's on it and understands these things and is looking for solutions as well. And then we've got me. Like, I'm all about this stuff. So I think that the other side of this is that we're probably gonna be able to do a lot more things just on our own by like researching it and seeing whether solutions are out there that we could try to use and experiment with. For sure. But we might actually have a chance to have someone come in from the outside and not just tell us what to do, but be another tool for us where we're all kind of encumbered and slammed really with all of our other stuff
1: we're trying to do in the day-to-day. For sure. What, tell me a little bit you mentioned Reform Shreveport mm-hmm. earlier. So the the from the, you know, kind of big picture, big company and data collection coming in, I know Reform Shreveport is more about doing small things. Tell us about that and your involvement and yeah. how you how you think it's you know the jam for Shreveport.
2: I think it's the jam for Shreveport because it is about the incremental. Like I think Shreveport gets really caught up in thinking that we need a big overhaul of everything and we rarely actually look and take inventory on the positives. So incremental development isn't always like the teeniest, tiniest thing, but for us it's what can we control and where can we make an impression and for us it started by doing a, a basically like overhauling a park with John Paul. We basically put together a, a erosion mitigation plan for Highland Park and because of the work that we committed to do asking anyone's permission we ended up being a part of surveying the neighborhood to find out what the neighborhood wanted to do with the money that was earmarked for improvements in the park. Oh nice. Yeah that was I think a kind of a turning point for us but we also are very interested in like the land use pieces of well how can we make if Well, what's our role in helping people understand what government can do and what we as citizens can do? Um, And that's kind of where what I think Reform's Jam is, Mm -hmm. is creating an environment for citizens that care about the built environment and figuring out where they come into play. Like, it's not so much about saying we need this business owner to do this. Mm -hmm. We need government to do that for that business owner. Sometimes it is. Um, sometimes it's just showing people that showing people what's possible Um, so there's a big park coming downtown the Shrewport Common Park Right. we activated a space adjacent to the park so people could see like this is an area where people could convene if you just put a few chairs and tables out and some shade and it has been used And it was being used really positively for a while, and then things got a little crazy. And it's about to move. We're moving that to another space. Like right now with the film prize going on, we kind of create like a pavilion for people like in the middle of the street. And it's like, is this a street? Like literally any space can be reformed into something else. Um, Parking is one. Mm -hmm. What we should do soon is maybe some just pop up, street diets where you might change the way the parking is put in like a protected bike lane for like a a, for a day Mm -hmm. and show people like how many more uses you can have on the street and how much it slows traffic down Mm -hmm. and how much safer people feel walking in and out of retail spaces when the environment is slowed down like that
1: oh I like that they've done
2: pop-up like different groups do things like pop-up dog parks Um, we're interested in doing something and this is actually before the cool dudes took over Jacqueline's We've been talking to the owners of um, the art studios and to um, Well and Fed about doing some sort of like a pop up beer garden and activities on Louisiana at Egan. Oh, Eagan.
1: that sounds lovely. Just
2: to show you like that this area is kind of ready for more activity.
3: That whole sure. neighborhood is really like if you drive. Is that Egan mm-hmm. that Well Fed is on? Yeah. Okay, so if you drive into the next block, there there used to be like an old it looks like a, a large very large house there and kind of half of it's there and there's kind of a, a gate that's kind of fallen down so it's basically there, there's a piece of property there and again I don't know anything about it but it's kind of close to to stoner where Josh Clayton is and it's uh the if you're one street off of Stoner, then those houses become much smaller and much more manageable mm-hmm. as opposed to those larger, you know. And I think Stoner originally was, those were um, housing, those were multi family unit mm-hmm. homes. And some of those were big, sort of plantation style, huge family homes. Mm-hmm. So when you go blocks in from that, there is really nice, small, like stuff that Austin could go in. And if you could put together groups of those so that you could, Uh, this is sort of my like pie in the sky thing, but if you could go, hey, these four houses, like nobody wants them, they're on the rolls for some, you know, absentee Mm -hmm. owner. Let's go to him and say, hey, just let's, can we have all four, and then that way you can go in and you can design a plan for all four houses to look similar, use similar um, materials so that they tie together. But also you can get, uh, you know, you have a volume Say purchase there for your materials, right. for your labor to to then not price out right. a small family from actually coming in and, and well, making that. There and there's
2: some other groups in the area that are that have um, access to some funds to do some cool stuff to kind of help, especially in Highland. Um, there's an endowment that gave to a church into Centenary, and I think there's some plans with the church and its First Pres, um, First Presbyterian, to try to figure out a way to and renovate some homes and get families into them or to do low-interest uh, loans for families that want, they've bought the house, but they need a little help with doing the fixing up.
3: Is there any program, I know a couple people have talked to you about this, um, and it sounds like it would be... I think something,
2: Thomas woke up, y'all. Did y'all notice that? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it
3: would be interesting if you could train people from the neighborhood who maybe, you know dropped out of school or you know had some sort of entanglement that they've now sorted but they want to they want to learn a trade they want to learn a job and then make that person like hey we're going to teach this person construction and this guy hvac and then
2: i think that there might be some like
3: like their a programs, neighborhood i don't know tech about the neighborhood
2: level but that's a good idea um i don't know about it at the neighborhood level but i do know that um like with the fuller housing, people mm-hmm. did help build their houses that they're living in now, yeah. you know? And, and
3: does that, I would think that that would give them some ownership and some pride in that. Well,
2: for sure. So. Um, for sure. It's interesting to actually drive around different neighborhoods and just see where you've got like modest homes that are very well kept and like manicured lawns and know that there's a lot of pride there and to think about why. Um, One neighborhood that like, we talk a lot about Highlands because there's so much diversity there. And by the way, Highlands is is intentionally checkerboarded. People lived close to the homes that they worked for. Right. Um, But like Caddo Heights is somewhat of a working class uh, neighborhood. And some of the architecture over there is really wonderful. And I would do like a street dedication over there. And you drive through and you'll see like a lot of litter, a lot of sadness, a little blight. And then you get to a block where all the original homeowners still own these homes, and, and they're all retired, and we don't know who's going to replace them in those homes. But right now, all the lawns are lush, all the shrubbery is pristine, mm-hmm. everything is perfection. You know where the owners are and where the renters are. Right. But like like right. there is still like, there are still these pockets of neighborhoods that we take for granted that people have a lot of pride in. Um, I wish that more people could, like, see that and feel a sense of hope and optimism instead of always being kind of down. But what we do have to do is figure out before those houses go into a succession, like, if that person passes away and their kids have moved to, to Atlanta or Austin or Dallas and they're never coming back, how do we protect that property that's in such good shape from becoming the neighbors? Right. And then maybe that being the incentive to get someone to take over those other properties that have kind of away a little bit.
1: That makes sense.
2: But as far as the workforce development piece, there's a lot of very intentional programs, but I don't know if the, anyone has actually approached it from like the neighborhood s- side of it, at least not in Highland. But um, I think that there's a couple of interesting things on the horizon with a d- bunch of groups that are talking about things. This is kind of a historic preservation thing too when you talk about the materials. We have Historic Preservation Commission. We have some, some designated areas. Um, some are the buildings and some are the districts. So um, the South Highlands Historic District, Highland has a historic district and it doesn't encompass everything we consider as Highland and then you have like the Fairfield Historic District. Then you have some things that are like already registered nationally as historic buildings and some that are of like local value. Um, when you're working in the districts and you've got to make changes externally to your home, you have to go through a separate certification not cer- yeah, certification process to get a certificate of appropriateness for your structural changes. Oh wow! And that has been somewhat controversial for people because it's
1: complicated. And, and hard. the thing is, it's
2: not really that bad. I think a lot of it is we want to make sure you're not changing the orientation, the scale. Um, and anything significant about the house that's going to detract from the historic neighborhood or from the fact that you're working on a historic structure. Um, we're not saying anything about the interior. It's just the exteriors. And um, sometimes I think that it gets a little intimidating for people and they see it as another reason to not want to go into that to the districts. But it's partially to keep the charm of why why we like Highland, oh, right? Sure. Yeah. Um so I've seen and that's one of the rules that I mentioned with Austin. I've seen a couple of houses come through and I'm like, why are we having to worry about this right now? Can we pull back the can we release some of these guidelines? For me the biggest thing is scale and setback. So when we talk about historic preservation commission and what policies they have in place the first thing people talk about is on Fairfield at I think Dalzell, where there's like this row of brick like duplexes mm-hmm. that never should have happened. And the biggest issue is that they're not facing they're they're close to the street and they don't face Fairfield. Right. So and they're so small. So there's your scale and setback thing. Like they should have been set back as far as the mansions that are lining the street. Mm-hmm. And then it should have be, it should have been big, even if it meant doing like a big multifamily or something, it should have at least been oriented like everything else on the street, but there was no overarching policy in place to stop them from doing exactly what they did. Gotcha. The historic preservation piece went into the code after the fact.
1: Wow. So, you are I mean, we, we're going right back to the beginning. Yeah. Any piece of policy that, that gets added or taken out has, Honestly, like has we should... real
2: life... We should probably start the whole interview right there, yeah. And then go back and take some of the other pieces we were talking about with like Stoner and put them after this, yeah. You know, because like I think we're just now getting like warmed up on it. Like this is this is how policy affects us,
1: right? And that has long-term consequences, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. apartment complexes that are built aren't going to go away tomorrow. We're going to have to live with those for quite some time, right? And and the thing is, what's being built now isn't always
2: built to the same standards as things 100 years ago. Sure. And that's the wonderful thing about, like, working in a historic building. Like, if you're in a downtown building, there's a lot more diversity to the activities you can have inside that building than a big or small box store that was also built to intentionally depreciate in 10 to 15 years.
1: Yeah, that's something that I learned from a a Strong Towns talk a while back is that big box stores, like, like your Walmarts and your Targets, are built on purpose to not retain any value past about 10 or 15 years, mm-hmm. I think. So think
2: about the academy sports right. on, on Burt Coons. Rather than renew a lease with the owner of that one, academy just decided to build right next door. Because it's cheaper? Yeah, it was, like it was costing them no skin off their back to just you know, we'll just build just abandon else. this. And we got lucky that someone did come in. I think Ivan Smith or someone. See, the Is it furniture that went in next door? Or, that sounds right. Or like a, some offices. Yeah. Whatever it was, they got lucky that someone was able to go in there. But often that's not the case. Think about how long like Circuit City and Linens and things and all of that stayed empty. On Uri Drive. On yeah. Uri Drive. Because these things are built. To, they're not built to hold value. Right. And when they depreciate, it's easier for the owner to just go build somewhere else. That shouldn't be, right? But that's back on us. Yeah, some, we, need,
1: we need to put the policy in place to prevent that.
2: Some cities actually put into their, their code documents um, restrictions that they hold everyone to, big or small. And what happens on a local level is you have a lot of local developers that say you're making it hard for us to do business, it's too expensive for us to do this. But the argument back is one, we're gonna hold you and Family Dollar to the same standard and CVS to the same standard, but also your return on investment will be higher because you're going to have more foot traffic. If we come in and say that we want our setbacks to be closer to the street with a sidewalk, pedestrian friendly, parking can be behind mm-hmm. with a little bit of on street in the front, we've created an environment where buildings are closer together, people can go in and out of each building and they're on the street they're spending more money they're at the cafe they're at the retail store they're at their office and maybe they live upstairs and now we're able to get more revenue as a city out of that area
1: that sounds like the way to go like but, and that's, hands down it's on know?
2: it's up to us as citizens and government to put policies like that in place and it doesn't have to be for every district but we can actually be intentional about areas that we want to see those things happen for sure
0: well, just just to play devil's advocate here Aren't these developers making decisions based on a market economy? And aren't they making decisions that puts more profit into into their bottom line? And would they make completely different decisions if the policy were different, such as not continuing a lease, not rebuilding, not even choosing to do business in the area? Would, you in know,
2: some cases, that might happen, but a city has to be brave enough to say, well, there's the door, because someone's going to come in that appreciates that you have high self-esteem. And when you have high self-esteem, they realize that they're gonna do better business over a longer period of time. And I think that they might be looking at the numbers, they're looking at the easy numbers for them, but I don't think it's that hard to say, please reconsider those numbers. Here's an opportunity for you to do more business over a longer period of time with us. And then it might be that we say, but if you do this, we're also going to incentivize you doing this by doing X, Y, Z on our side. Like we're giving you a better street we're making it possible for more people to be on this street so they can come into your store but in return we're asking for you to do this
1: and i kind of want to point out in a lot of cases another thing i learned from a, a strong towns i think that same strong towns talk just because we have a big box store moving in and everybody's really excited about that and yay jobs and stuff it doesn't necessarily balance out in the end the jobs aren't as well paying as a lot right. of a lot of smaller we're still focusing companies. on a
2: retail economy right. And if we're going to be a retail and tourism economy, we're going to start bulking up our tourist amenities. You know we can We have to do one or the other. we can't. Superman's not coming to bring us all of the industry. We can support younger opportunity, younger entrepreneurs who might end up being our job creators, but it's still going to be a smaller scale. So instead of worrying about growth, we need to worry about stabilizing the size that we are. In making those entrepreneurial opportunities easier to be here to have. Like, okay, low cost of living in a supportive community, in a smarter community, because we're starting to educate people better, we're Mm -hmm. providing more opportunities for young people to get the skills that are needed in an information workforce here. Okay, Mm -hmm. the other side of that is, well, if we're not going to do that, we better teach everybody to sing and dance real good. (laughs) Right. Sing and dance real good. Play that banjo. Go on the stage of the municipal because every weekend we're asking Arkansas to come down here and listen to you sing and dance. Um, Listen to you sing, watch you dance. And then you better be really good at cooking and waiting tables because they're going to need somewhere to eat after. Right. If that's not what we want our economy to be, then we have to like focus holistically on every single one of these things. You know.
3: How, how do you do that? That's the part that I agree that if you're going to – Encourage a younger generation of people to work here that is going to look different than going to the plant, clocking in and clocking and out, and making a car because that's not that doesn't exist really anywhere. E- anywhere. Right. And the places it does exist, it's getting smaller and smaller, right. and those jobs are, are less, you know, sustainable. Mm-hmm. But
2: so we support the startup prize, entrepreneur accelerator program any angel investors that want to be investing here and we keep courting those people to be here we've got like a new position at the med school the chief innovation officer who's doing a lot of cool stuff between the hospital and the local entrepreneur programs and then we've got people like demetrius norma who you've had on who's working directly with kids to get help them see the fun in getting these skills. When I was with the libraries, which was for 15 years, one of my primary things was trying to get more maker activities in the libraries. I got I got us our first Girls Who Code Club and my teachers for Girls Who Code came from Moonbot and Prices. Prices allowed someone to come over on the clock and teach young girls ages like 11 to 15 code. So, more of more is more mm-hmm. so the more opportunities like that that we're providing and saying not only can you learn these skills here but here are the people that are doing these things in your environment and they're not just you know zeros and ones all day some of them are making games some of them are making animation and then we have to do everything we can to keep those people here to, to set those examples so that we're they're setting an example they're teaching a new generation Other people who are entrepreneurs and looking for somewhere to land can say, okay, here's an environment that cares about what I want to do, and maybe I've got my own money to spend and I'm ready to take a risk. I'm going to take a risk in a place where my kids are going to be able to grow up and get the opportunities that are quality that I want them to have. And then we have to just keep banging that that drum. yeah, yeah.
3: But I think a lot of people, like a lot of people that I grew up with here that no longer live here, they'll often, you know say like I wish I could be there because I wish I could raise my family there it's a really great place to raise a family but I can't and, find a job but well, yeah like I I can't do my job there so that's the part where but I you know I also see like I see younger people moving back here mm-hmm. to to do things because they went somewhere they learned something and they know hey I can do this kind of from anywhere mm-hmm. which is is kind of how it's going it's like if we're going to train you know robots to lift the heavy stuff so nobody hurts their back then okay that
2: can operate the robots. right
3: who's gonna program the robot when it doesn't work right and do you have to be in the room to do that and that's something like that Demetrius or or someone Mm -hmm. can say hey man I can teach you you know there's a a girls who code class is there a guys who code class
2: well the reason that there has to be a girls who code class is that
3: they're all guy for code class
2: well there's not necessarily guys who code class and there are some groups that are like Working with underserved groups on, like, regardless of gender. But what we've seen is that there's, like, mostly a bunch of white dudes coding. So, well, where do they learn? We encourage, as a culture, we encourage boys to break their toys and put them back together. And we discourage girls from doing that because that's something boys do. And a lot of times, women do, women and girls learn in a more social environment and not necessarily a super competitive environment when you're first trying to learn stuff the competition might come later but it can be intimidating um and that still kind of play on stereotypes but as long as we as long as we're saying oh boys here's a computer while we're saying oh girls go play like go put on your makeup mm-hmm. you're going to continue to need to create those examples for girls that boys have always had back since Steve Jobs
3: well and is there locally there's there's more women here than there are men. Mm-hmm. That's a metric that I, I don't know that. That's just what I hear people saying. Do you know if that's true or not?
2: Yeah. Just...
3: I, I, I think that's true. So why not make it, make this the place where women can come learn to code? Like why, why, why not make, like you already, you already started Girls Who Code class. Like make that our, you know, our thing. Like and we probably hey, should be
2: having more like women and women in tech mixers, women in science mixers. Well, because
3: there's, there's, nationally like globally there are more women and more and women are starting to be able to step into jobs that before for whatever backwards reason they were not allowed to right and especially like locally where we we tend to have a little bit of a lag between technology and sort of getting up mm-hmm. to code with oh you can't treat people different we're all the same, which we're still trying to learn. Well, and,
2: But, and then, like, never mind, like, I just, I have to get this out. Like, one of the first women of computer science was Ada Lovelace. Like, if you go back to the humble beginnings of code, like, the yeah, first people that were, were like,
3: that they was were all women. women. They were all women because they're yeah. detail oriented. Mm-hmm. And they were, and it was like, these are punch cards. This is a very mm-hmm. hard job, but you have to be very diligent and you have to be very detail oriented. And yes, most of the original programmers were women and in library the,
2: indexes are all like yeah. that's women yeah mm-hmm. mark records yeah. Uh, but yeah I mean but back to what you were saying like yeah we can um, we could be doing more to showcase that we do that we are an environment that is welcoming for women to be in these positions but we have to see where they are and make sure that we're showcasing that like a lot of times it's women like Sarah a bear who works for herself right and mm-hmm. has all of these skills like so, you know, if you're working on your own, like what associations, like what, who are her friends that are doing this that are also women that need to be at the table talking about those things? And then what do they need from us as a city to encourage them to want to be here? And like, I'm, I'm interested in here what those answers would be.
3: To this yeah, questions. yeah, me too. Like, I, I would love to hear like a conversation between, you know, you guys and Sarah to say like, hey, here's. Five things that nobody knows about, but they're going on. And yeah. it's just because there's no venue to, to hear. There's there's not a very strong uh, newspaper presence currently. It's yeah. a lot of like AP, which is national news, uh, but but you less local news. One thing that we news. could
2: actually do as a community that would help a lot is read and be avid consumers of information and then demand information. And if we're mm. demanding information and we're willing to pay for it, maybe we can take our newspaper back. That would be super useful. If we, and even if it was just an online presence. Right. But what we need to be is <clears as> readers. <throat> I think that more than anything it's like, we're either an echo chamber or we're disparate voices in the abyss. So. I think that what we really need is a way to focus and to read and know that everyone is information literate. Everyone is trying to get accurate information and can tell the difference when there's like when it's loaded with bias right. and conjecture. Because right now, with like nature abhors a vacuum, with the paper being a little weak because they're understaffed and have a lot of AP filler, people are picking up the paper to see their children who play sports or see the society pages or to see the obituaries. And maybe they're reading about food and culture because, like, other than, like, those few things, the other things that get the biggest hits are going to be what Tiana's writing because she gets to write all the fun, cool stuff. Right. Now, because of that, you've got bloggers that are popping up that are loading everything with static and conjecture and their personal issues, even if they do get a couple of facts right. So now, how do you, as a as a citizen who wants to be an active citizen and wants to know that you're giving out accurate information how do you participate yeah you that know? makes it
1: hard to vet what is it makes it very difficult because not and
2: everyone is information literate and right. not everyone realizes like the personal biases of someone that shouldn't even be taken seriously or kind of dragging down what's actually happening yeah and then that kind of stokes those emotions more you
3: that know? too is like the sort of like when we started having these conversations, it was more about, let's talk about... We already know like there's a bunch of problems and everybody wants to point out the problems. Let's talk about the things that are working right because you'll hear people say, like, oh, yeah, that's bad, but this is good. But you don't see that written because it doesn't sell. Yeah. Like, nobody, <laughs> nobody reads that newspaper article about positivity. But I, I was looking at an old newspaper... Uh, I think I said this last week or the week before. But there was this... Uh, newspaper about like downtown and it was from the 90s and it was like all this stuff is falling apart and it's all but like if you're and i think i'll do this just i'm gonna take it and i'll call liz and i'll get with her and just be like hey man can i just go take pictures of all this stuff they said was falling down so that we can give people an idea of like this is we really made progress everybody's still like it's still there's still
2: buildings that were on the endangered list uh a couple years ago are now either developed or in development in the Shreveport Common right now.
3: Yeah. Oh, that's amazing.
2: Yeah. So there's a lot, there's activity. I looked at a, a map of the Shreveport Common in our meeting the other day and it was like red and green dots that were things that were either started after 2011 and done or things that were in development. There were way more red and green dots than anything else. Like this is an area that's coming back. Mm-hmm. All it needs is more people to come look at how much is going yeah. on. It's really funny to kinda watch like to know that I started getting involved in historic preservation fifteen years ago and now it feels like overnight success is happening. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's the thing about incremental is like people don't people don't like the feeling of patience and waiting that it takes to see things become an overnight success. Like yeah. I remember when Robinson Film Center was not open, they were doing screenings with the Centenary Film Society and then I remember going and seeing the um, the Edith Piaf movie out at Tinseltown, or, or at Regal and Bosier, that's where it was and now they've got this beautiful building and then they were the only thing in the block for how long like you looked out that balcony and go what is that building? Is it a was it a Sears? Like, what is it now? How long has it been empty? And now it's a loft building with an awesome coffee shop downtown. I mean, downstairs. And then the next block over, you can get awesome tacos and look at really wonderful art and like have events. And there's events going on
1: weekly that kind of go in and out of all of these spaces. So, And that's, that's something when you're in the weeds and when you're living day to day, it is so hard to take a look backwards and and Mm -hmm. see the progress. Mm -hmm putting more information like that out there I think would be super useful just to show hey here are some benchmarks yeah. that we've actually hit look yeah. at look at the progress we've made
0: well and that's in your district yeah and so there was a time that I was having drinks on the patio at the Robinson or at the Abbey singers and every building window across the street was busted out
2: Was mm-hmm. busted out yeah.
0: and or boarded up or bricked up the Sears building was bricked, bricked up, up. Yep. there was nothing going on across the street so to We've been in here at least an hour and some change, so uh, let's let's wrap it up on a positive note and talk about what you're proud of downtown, and, and you and Danielle can hit some high notes because I know you've got to be proud because we can say that the population is decreasing. We can say that there are neighborhoods that have trouble and that have a lot of police presence mm-hmm. because it's necessary, but well, I think it's taken years, but one shining example of how, how Shreveport is improving incrementally is right there in your district in downtown Shreveport
2: downtown Shreveport has the safest um, has the safest record of any city of, of any neighborhood in the city um, we've got a lot of development happening down there Jim Moss has a building that he's working on we've got a distillery that's gonna be opening up possibly in March of 2020 um, that's You know, that's optimistic, but Mm -hmm. still. We have walkable blocks of Texas Street um, with lots of activity. We have ample amount of apartment spaces right now, so we could have a lot of people living downtown. We've got... um, uh, we have plenty of parking for everyone. Right. And we've got opportunities for people to like just come be a part of it. We've got lots of arts activities. The Shrewport Common Park is going to be opening at the end of this month. And there's going to be an amazing art exhibit down there. Um, friends with, with you friends with you right and um rainbow city is going to be in the park as the first exhibition and it's going to be awesome there's going to be a bunch of brunches and kids activities and runs and walks and stuff going on with that Hopefully but not the, just in my the weather and,
1: will be cooler by then. yeah end.
2: but not just downtown um we do have bike lanes going from downtown through highland we've got i've got successful locally owned restaurants throughout my district and they're not they're and they're. There's a diversity to the ownership too. Right. right. And that's something I think is super duper exciting. I have probably fourteen in with Shrewport Common Park I'll have fifteen parks in my district. Oh wow. That's yeah, including like the the dog park too. Right. right. Even though I have feelings about that.
1: Yeah. That's still a, a high number of parks yeah. for, for a district, that's pretty like good.
2: There's an opportunity in District B for more density, more activity, and there's loads of amenities. Like, I've got probably all of the theaters that people use for performances are in my district. Oh wow, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. the only th- if I could just annex in the the Norton Art Gallery, then <laughs> I would be golden right now. I think that the State Exhibit Museum is just outside of my district, but it might it might be in my district. Yeah, but yeah,
3: yeah. But there's like, there's a ton of stuff to like. Right by the time this comes out, the Revel will be completed, mm-hmm. but a lot of people have that we talked uh, we talk a lot about perception of downtown being dangerous or dark or whatever like those things are that are not necessarily true. And if if you look at while the is going on, like people come down here all day Mm -hmm. with their kids, nobody feels unsafe and then they go away and then they, oh yeah, you're right, it's real unsafe down there. It's like, well, you just go down there. This is
2: the thing, this is my love hate with something like Festival Plaza. And it goes back to like some of the stuff we talk about with the built environment and reform. I know you wanted us to start wrapping it up, I'm sorry. So here's the deal. When we create a space, we have to ask ourselves, what is the space supposed to do and why do we need it? I know that there is some ease for the organizers in having Festival Plaza, but what Festival Plaza is is an oven.
0: I just said we should wrap it up, but you just hit my hot button that I've never mentioned on this show. Okay. I've never mentioned so, so have, uh, have my, at it. So where, I'm listening with ears I live wide open. Where
2: is, I want there to be organic spontaneity in a festival and Festival Plaza has murdered that.
0: Did you grow up here in Tree Point? Yes. Did you go to the Revel when we yes. were kids? Did I you remember, go to uh, cro- uh, Crawfest or whatever when we were kids? Yeah, well, I Mudbug didn't,
2: mud didn't really do a lot for me. Some but, mud, but. it was raised relatively kosher, so we didn't do the shellfish festivals. Um, but, like, okay, I remember when they had to block Clyde Fance and I remember getting like my face painted in the middle of the street, all the art being in the middle of the street, going into the expo hall for something that junior league had going on and being able to sit on the river bank with a stage down the way and watch music. It was that way all the way up until pretty much I was in college. Now we have this oven that you basically, it's like the, it's like a, a church basement cake and punch on steroids because like everything gets set up the exact same way. Like there's literally only one place to put the punch table and one place to put the sheet cake and then Lucinda's finger sandwiches are going to go right there and don't try to put them anywhere else and don't tell her she can't bring them even though no one's going to eat them. That's the way we've always done it. Right. And the thing is, really because of the structure of it, we're limited on what we can do. We and haven't it,
3: always
0: done it that way. But we're we like, have. Ev- know, I mean, but yeah, ever we since we
2: built that thing, But well, we can
0: have a wine festival and a beer festival and a mud bug but, and a Rebel, which and is a this, great. And except that. they're all
2: basically the same thing. And what else that does is now we're taking the spontaneity out of it and the novelty out of it. And if you ever watch a show like, okay, Guilty Pleasures, Gilmore Girls and Heart of Dixie, because they actually had the same set. But the thing about a small Mayberry town is everything happens on the town square. Mm -hmm. Well, if you just cover up the stupid, like put something around the stupid structure the Confederate monument. Our town square is the courthouse. Yeah. We should be doing everything on the streets around the courthouse with, like, the bands, like, set up mm-hmm. in the grass. Mm-hmm. And now you're actually in the downtown. Mm-hmm. And if not that, go back to, like, we did things out. The art break used to happen at the municipal. Now, for the safety of the kids and the sanity of the teachers, I love having art break inside. Yes. That is genius. And air but, conditioned. But the thing is, by doing that... You go into the Festival Plaza, you park for $5 somewhere, you park at the casinos, you're very careful and precarious but you walk down there and then you get the heck up out of there instead of ever having to like drive through, walk through downtown and see the wonder and amazingness that it it is and can continue to be. And this is kind of how we've let development for development's sake get in our way instead of thinking it through. Mm -hmm. What was our goal? You know, a plaza is supposed to be buildings and then like the stairs from the buildings or with well, the entrances to the buildings all facing into this shared public space mm-hmm. an actual plaza would be in use 24-7 mm-hmm. like well, there would it, always be a reason to be there
3: and also the just the organic nature of like film prize where it's mm-hmm. like hey we're gonna use all of these different buildings, and you're gonna have to walk back and forth, and then you can go over here, and you can. We'll have a, a an event mm-hmm. where where some people will cook, or show a movie, or we'll talk about what was made, mm-hmm. like. And that's you use those streets, mm-hmm. and that's a that's a federal, that's a state highway, mm-hmm. right? So
2: it's cumbersome to close it off, but it's so worth it. But but
3: you can do. Point being, like Gregory has proved. This is like this many years now, you can't you can if you if you do your homework and you get everyone organized, you can shut the street down for a period of time. And the people who, you know, like people work at courthouse are probably like, oh, they're going to be shutting our street down. But they also were like, oh, and they come out and everybody is together and has a good time. There's a lot of diversity in the streets together, which I think is the way that you end up with Robinson and apartments and Rhino and Parish Taco and the church and all of the, and the courthouse, like you're saying, like that's it that that's all well,
0: and this is an organic city model this is how European cities were planned we have South America they all have a plaza which is right. for some you I mean it's, look at any map of any European city or South American yeah. city and there's a plaza to arms or a plaza you know and right and it, it's essentially located place what we did is just kind of located ours outside the middle you know well, a few yeah, blocks the, away uh, Well,
2: and this is the thing is if we actually were thinking about planning Um, I think there's some weird feng shui to Shreveport like Mm -hmm. um, think about Commerce Street I want you to think about this in like the most hippy dippy spiritual terms you can as far as feng shui when you're on Commerce Street and you're facing away from the building you're on the sidewalk and you're facing the train tracks what do you see you see the back the side of the civic center right we turned our back on commerce right like like how anti-poetic is that when you build a plaza or when you do anything you have to think when what is our goal what is the mission of what we're doing mm-hmm. and how do we best do that if we were build we weren't building a festival plaza we were building a festival barn mm. you know and we we do this continually like what purpose are we trying to serve the dog park what purpose were we trying to solve with the dog park or serve at the dog park i needed more coffee um We wanted people to have a place to be social with their dogs, that their dogs off leash in a safe environment that was about people who love animals getting together with the animals they love and letting the animals play and roam free. Mm -hmm. Under what circumstances do people normally need that? They live in an area with limited opportunities to take their dogs off of a leash, probably in the middle of a city with with limited lawns, limited lawn space, but most likely a fairly pedestrian area. Mm -hmm. So from my thinking as a planner, the best place for a dog park is going to be an area that's already fairly walkable, where you have a limited area as far as like you've got people with apartments mm-hmm. and houses with small lawns and an existing park space that they're already trying to use. So what you do, you prove that you need the dog park, and this is, this is Reform Shreveport at its core. Mm-hmm. You prove the need for the dog park by fencing off a piece of grass, putting some poop bags out there. And a water hose and see what happens and see what happens you don't now if I wanted to take Josephine Baker my dog to the dog park now let me tell you she's 10 pounds she's white she's Maltese she's like a Maltese terrier mix so she's like a white Yorkie and she's very prissy she's mm-hmm. definitely earned the name uh, Josephine Baker <laughs> except when she sees a squirrel then she's just like animal planet it's crazy I'm not taking my tiny white dog to an area that is mostly red clay from all the times that it has flooded. And now I've got like, not only do I take my dog, I need a towel Mm -hmm. to clean her off. I need a water bowl. I'm probably going to, I've got to have the leash and everything. You know, I'm going to have to have some treats. I feel like I'm taking a dog to the beach. Does this not sound a little bit like you're taking your kids to the beach? You know? Yeah,
1: that's a lot a lot. Dog of park is
2: not supposed to feel like you're taking your no. kid on a weekend at the beach or a day to the beach. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's about like actually thinking through the purpose for what you're doing and making sure that you're going to get the most good for the most people for the longest time.
0: I'm with you. Now, where do we have that going on right now in downtown Shreveport?
2: Right now, downtown Shreveport, the West Edge is really that. I'm thinking to some degree that the, the Shreveport Common can be that to some extent, but that's a wait and see. I think that we have an opportunity to continue to do that if we just keep those things at the forefront of our minds, um, that we can do the most good for the most people for the longest time if we just remember that that's why we're there.
1: Well, and I really like the Reformed Shreveport method of trial and error. Like, there is no need to sink hundreds of thousands of dollars into any sort of effort unless you've sort of tested out its yeah, viability. Yeah, for sure.
2: Um, and I see that not just in downtown, but I see that happening in that space of downtown, and we can build on that because mm-hmm. more is more when we're talking about things like that. And I see that, like, with, like we have an opportunity now with Cotton Street, Um, with everything happening there, the next thing for the city to do would be to put in bike lanes and make sure those sidewalks are perfect and make sure we've got really good landscaping so that people can walk between the corner and, um, and, the uh every mannequin the distillery and, and yeah maybe the strand. Right. Like maybe you're going to all of these things in one evening because you've made a night of it and you feel safe doing that. Yeah. So I think that the next thing be connectivity for pedestrians to feel safe between the strand and every mannequin in the corner. That sounds ideal. Yeah. And actually I, I walked recently with a friend from the corner to Central because I was judging the drag queen contest mm-hmm. and it's really not that far. Nice. And the thing is it was fairly clean. You know, I didn't feel, I mean, we were together, so with system, there was no real need for harm. But the other thing would be to make that pedestrian area a little bit more friendly. Mm-hmm. And then for me, if we were gonna master plan an area the way that Bozier has master planned their piece of a downtown, did that sound shady? No. Okay, I meant for it to sound kind of shady. <laughs> I would go from Stoner on Marshall Street all the way to Lake Street. And I'll put in the infrastructure so that you could have better living spaces and more retail spaces and maybe even more breweries. And you make a complete street that gets you connectivity from Highland all the way into downtown for your bikes and your walking.
1: That would be brilliant. Wouldn't it, though? And the cost associated with that would not be just exorbitant, right? I mean, like you, that's, a, that's feasible. You, that's you master plan it out and you say...
2: We know that there's some residential right there, what can we do to either help people find better homing or to fix those houses up to bring them back to historical glory? Mm -hmm. But then some of the areas are already industrial, so what do we say instead of it being a built like being for construction, it's industrial for manufacturing of more distilled drinks or maybe even some kind of sodas where you're making an awesome Louisiana soda and you've got a soda fountain right there in the front. And whatever dress shops or whatever cafes can go in between those. Mm-hmm. And they might have live workspace above them. And there might be single family residencies behind those because there's already some that are there. They're in really, really good shape. You can see them when you're driving down the Cresswell right there. Mm-hmm. But if you make that area more connected to downtown, you lose that psychological barrier because you see the bridges and you feel like you're going into like. I don't know you're like you're going through a vortex to get into downtown it always feels kind of weird and eerie it does we yeah. take that away by making it more walkable and bikeable and you've got more people coming into downtown and utilizing all the amenities between the Red River District and Red River Brewery
1: I like it let's make that happen
2: I'm trying to figure out where the grant money is so I can do exactly that
1: I love it will you keep us posted heck yeah awesome. Totally. So shall I ask, who should our next podcast guest be? Man, I've
2: tried to hard, I know y'all asked this, and um, I don't know. I've been thinking, I personally, I think that I want to hear from too many people to be able to make that decision. But I do want to hear from three people, even if I get to do the interview myself. Um, Joe Bloom, Brittany Lee, and Kirk Reedstrom. Joe has worked several times with Random House on children's picture books. Brittany Lee just published her first children's picture book with a national publisher. And Kirk Greenstrom has a national agent is looking for, he's shopping around for a publisher right now. And in my previous life, I was a children's librarian. We now have three children's picture book makers that are not Bill Joyce. And I really want to hear about that because what if that's like another enclave that we become?
1: I would nerd out about that all day long. Being a graphic designer yeah. and, um, you know, a, a book nerd myself, that could be a cool industry to sort of take root here in Treeport. So, yeah, that's who I want to hear from. But okay. other than that, there's like, I've got such a
2: long list of people that I feel like, like while we were talking, people that could like give input on
1: any piece of what we've been discussing. And I just will have to give you a list later because I cannot decide. We can do that. So if you could send a text message to every person in Shreveport, what would it say? Stop complaining and go,
2: stop navel-gazing and go do something. I like it. Well, we do, we, we have a, we're always, people say we're in an identity crisis. Yeah. So what do you do to a teenager that's having an identity crisis? Get out of your room and go do something. Yeah, get out of your head. Yeah.
0: I like it thank you guys for coming in Uh, congratulations to Richard creative for a recent award you won what was that
1: it we are one of the top small businesses as um, voted by the the Shreveport Chamber
0: that was awesome I noticed that you were recognized for that so congrats to that congrats to you and your husband on that and um, let's see what we have thank you for listening You've been tuning in and, and, and sharing our podcast and Absolutely. I really appreciate you doing that and being involved and thank you for coming in and bringing Lavette in with you. And thank thanks you, Councilwoman Fuller. We really appreciate your time and thanks for your expertise. And um and I Can hope I, I hope we get that I would love to see Marshall
3: Wouldn't uh, that be cool? I think thing?
0: that's a really great idea.
1: I was gonna ask real quick. You, I know there's a, a Strong Towns event coming up. <gasps> November nineteenth at the Engine Room, tentatively at six o'clock.
2: Chuck okay. Morone is gonna be in from Strong Towns with Reform. Oh, I wrote the afterward for his
1: book. I was just about to ask. He's got a book out. Yeah, he's you got a book are, out. You are. So you're actually in print in his book. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. Some people called it braggadocious. I think they're just saddened no those arrests
2: than
0: write for a book. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for both of you guys for coming in, and and um, we, we, we really appreciate your time here today. Thank
1: awesome. you. Awesome. Thank you for having us. All
0: right. That wraps it up. Thanks, guys. Thank you.